Would you open your Bibles to Genesis 19? I think all of us have seasons of, in our lives where we just don't feel like ourselves. We feel off. Sometimes those are the hardest times to be around other people, especially in the holidays. Um, remember many years ago, I went through a season of pretty deep depression. Uh, I was a young man. God was turning my life upside down and really digging deep into sin, dwelling in my heart, my past. Boy, I just felt like I was in a walking pit daily. It was very, very hard to be around other people. I didn't like the me that was being presented. I even wondered, man, does anybody even want to be my friend? Um, because this isn't the normal Keith that's being revealed. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that where you just don't feel like yourself and yet you're trapped? Um, how many of us love to be around people in that situation? You volunteer to go places? Often we just want to go and hide, to pull away. Why? Well, often because we have a perception of ourselves that we want to present to others. We want to be seen a certain way. We don't want to come across poorly to others. Most people don't like the feeling of being misunderstood. It's even harder when our flesh is revealed before others. It's a bit of a different situation where you just feel up in the flesh and yet people are around. It's hard to be around people in those situations, especially non-family members, because the me that's being presented in my response or my reaction is not the me that I want you to see. And sometimes in those situations, the easiest thing to do is just apologize. Have you ever found yourself in that place? Sorry, I was snappy. I haven't been sleeping well. Sorry I was rude to you. I've had a hard day. And while there are often understandable pieces, uh, truth pieces really, to these types of statements, we often attach an excuse to the apology in order to gain sympathy or, or understanding. Because who hasn't been grumpy after not sleeping well? New moms, you know this very well. Who hasn't been rude after a hard day. And yet we make the excuse ultimately to feel justified in our sin or in our flesh, to excuse away that which has been revealed. Because in all of these situations, something's being revealed. Many years ago, when Laura Beth and I first went to Rwanda, we went with a precious couple that we had hoped to do ministry with as a team. We were working with street kids there in the capital of Rwanda. And uh, at one point we went and we did volcano relief in, in Goma. That was very interesting. People were actually cooking beans on, on lava that was hardened. Uh, never seen anything like that. But during that time, this, our one teammate, she hurt her knee, tore part of her ACL and had to go back to the States and go through surgery. It was a very difficult time for them. But before that happened, really, the in-between, as she hurt the knee and before they left, they just pulled away as a couple. And I remember how painful that was. There was this relational tension that we couldn't do anything about because she was so hurting. She didn't want to be around us. When that knee was finally repaired and they came back to Uganda, met us in Uganda and were going through institute with us in that 20-week course that Laura Beth and I attended back in 2002, Young Marrieds. She actually had a miscarriage during that time. And in her pain of grief on top of all of these things, it's like everything just came back. They pulled away again. Um, the relational tension hit again. And we just began saying, man, are we meant to, to be in team together? Are we meant to walk together? And I remember really what stood out to me during that time was she, she actually said to us, I'm so sorry that you have to see me like this. I wish you could see me when I'm the real me. And I was caught off guard. I remember thinking, isn't this the real you? Isn't this an aspect of who you are that's revealed that you're wanting to hide or, or keep away from us? Right? We apologize. And, and that's understandable. She was hurting. There was grief. There were so many complex layers. 
But what we missed out on was the joy and privilege of walking through the hard thing together because she didn't like the her that was being revealed before others. And so in her pulling away and even in her apology, it just hurt. It came up a hurt in the relationship. The truth is, I've done that same thing many times over. The question really comes to you and to me, when do we see the real you? Do we ever? And you might be wondering what this has to do with a sermon that is clearly about God judging and destroying wicked sinners, right? Genesis 19, Sodom, Gomorrah. And yet, This passage is about so much more. It's about the character of God. It's about the state of our hearts. It's about our own families and our own journey with God and with each other in the midst of this world that we live in. And in fact, as we go through this chapter together, we're gonna discover that God sovereignly puts us in situations or creates situations to reveal our own hearts, to draw out our sin so that we might escape it. He reveals our desperate need of him and the reality of both judgment and salvation in the midst of our need and the brokenness and the broken pieces that we walk through in life. And he leads us to the hope that comes to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a reality that both protects us and our families from the corrupting influences of the world that we might cast ourselves on God in the midst of the painful and difficult situations of life and that we might invite others in and journey together through the things that we face. So with that, let's pray together as we come into Genesis 19 and just ask God to open our hearts to what he would have for us. Lord, we are a people who do desperately need you and What a journey you've given us to walk through your word through Genesis and to get to walk with Abraham and and Sarah, to get to see our own hearts revealed. And, And even this journey this day with Lot and the people of Sodom, Lord, we need you. We pray that you would bring fresh truth to us from this story. We pray that you would reveal and penetrate our own hearts, that you would do a work in our midst and continue to build us as family together, who can journey together in you and who can walk and bear one another's burdens and and cast each other, right, together upon the the great grace of you, our God, and Jesus. So, Lord, would you lead us in this time? In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Last week we were drawn into this portion of the narrative through looking at Abraham and as the angels came and and really the Lord himself coming and revealing to Abraham his plans concerning Sodom. And we saw Abraham's heart revealed in relationship to God. We saw Abraham revealed as an intercessor. And I loved that point last week, really that that draw to stand and and to intercede uh, before God for the, the, the world that we live in. And we saw Abraham doing this. We also saw his awe of God and his boldness as he prayed and interceded. And, and really, even as Peter reminded us last week that, that this account wasn't written for the people of Sodom, right? This account was written for his people, for Israel, for us. It is for his body, for his church. And it reveals incredible truths for us about God and his people. And really, as we come into Genesis 19, we see that, that there's four main sections to the chapter. All right, the first three are, are marked out by section markers, and it's always helpful as you read a story when you see these kinds of indicators. Uh, for example, in 19.1, we find two angels coming in the evening. So there's this time marker. In 19.15, we find as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot. So this new time frame. And then in 1923, when the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. And so this, now the sun is rising. And so we see these markers of time bringing us into these three main sections, these three movements 
through the storyline. And then there's a kind of an addendum there at the end that connects specifically to Lot and his daughters. And so we begin the journey into Sodom, really right into this first section. And in this, we're going to see uh, hearts revealed. And that's what we'll title the first section. It's, it's God revealing hearts. And so the angels come into Sodom, the two angels, they've left the Lord back with Abraham. And as they journey in, we find right here in 19.1, two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And so we find Lot there in the city gate. And the city gate is where the life of the city happens, right? It's, it's where the prominent people sit. It's where decisions are made. It's where business takes place. And really what we find is Lot, after all of these years, he is fully integrated into the life, into the business of the city. And it's from the city gate that he looks and he gazes and he sees these angels coming. But appearances don't determine reality. Even as we see Lot with the appearance of his place in the city, that isn't what we're going to find is real. Of course, that applies to most matters of the heart, right? Appearances don't necessarily determine reality. They can be deceiving. And we only need to listen to the rest of the story to see this. And so Lot gets up and he comes and he greets them. And with great reverence, he bows himself with his face to the earth. And in that, he offers them hospitality. Oh, that did not sink. I had a, had a couple of, of pieces there. That's okay. Nothing major. And so Lot bows. He offers them to come and to turn into his house, to spend the night, to wash their feet before they could then get up early the next day. The entire scene really is an interesting contrast to Abraham that just in the last chapter, we found Abraham seated in his tent. He also had risen. He rose to greet them. He bowed himself to the earth. He offered them hospitality. And here is Lot in the city gate rising and bowing to the earth and offering them hospitality. And it's a very interesting contrast because actually if we go all the way back to Genesis 13, there is a contrast between Abraham and Lot. And that's actually quite a fun narrative to look at, to look specifically at the storyline as Abraham and Lot are kind of juxtaposed to one another and then woven, right? As Lot is woven into the story of Abraham. And so here that image comes very clear because the two are going to be contrasted very clearly in Genesis chapter 19. But the angels don't want to stay at his house. They say no in verse 2. They want to spend the night in the town square. But Lot pressed them greatly. So finally they turned aside and entered his house and he made a feast of unleavened bread and they ate together. We get the idea, though the text doesn't state it, that Lot knows it's going to be a bad idea. You don't stay in the town square. That's not where you spend the night, right? He, he's going to, to press to bring them into his home. And that's an important pressing. Um, he wants to care for these strangers in a way that he knows they will not find out in the town itself. And really this is where the similarities of the story of Abraham and Lot and the contrast of the two really ends. It ends with a shared meal before a coming betrayal and sinful acts and judgment that's going to be poured out. Moses tells us that it was just before they laid down, right? It's before bedtime that the, the tragic reality comes to pass. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, in verse 4, tells us both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, 
this isn't so that we can know about them. This is not so that we can gain information. Like we don't know who these strangers are, so we want to learn, you know. Uh, they waited until nightfall. They waited until bedtime for a reason. It's at this point that they come because they want to know them. They want to know them in the same way that Adam knew his wife Eve. It is, it is an intimate knowing. It is a twisted sexual reality that is occurring here. And, and the wickedness in the language and the wickedness of the, their desires as they surround the house to take advantage of these sojourners, right? Contrary to what God had called his people to, which is to love the sojourner. And we find a whole beautiful biblical theology of the sojourner woven through scripture. And Lot is going to image that just as Abraham does. The men of Sodom come, every one of them, because they have a different idea for the sojourner in their midst. And it is a twisted knowing. And their hearts are revealed. And we find that really made clear in verse 7 because Lot recognizes this. He goes out and he says to them in verse 7, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. You hear that language? I beg you, my brothers. It's like Lot is pleading with them with intimate language. Lot, who has been a sojourner, Lot, who is not native of Sodom, but he has been among them as one of them. I'm pleading with you, my brothers, do not act in this wickedness. Because he knew the intention of their heart that has now been revealed. But it's the next statement that for me is potentially even more shocking than the others, at least to, to our ears, right? To our ears, it, it, it sounds like we, we hear this in verse 8, Lot says, Behold, I have two daughters, and they've not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. And over the years, I've heard many explanations of, of this response. Oftentimes, we try to excuse away what Lot has done. We'll kind of bring some of the cultural nuance, right? That, that in the ancient world, if someone came under the protection or the shelter of your roof, it, it was like, I will protect these people at all costs, even the cost of my own life. And we go, okay. I mean, I, that's great. That, that would be wonderful. Um, Lot is, if Lot had stood and said, no way, take me, right? That's not what Lot does. And the reality that cultural practices do not determine in themselves what is right before God. And I could give you many cultural stories in a Ugandan context of how this plays out. And Lot doesn't offer himself. He doesn't refuse and cry out to Yahweh, God, the God who has been his protector and even his rescuer. Instead, he offers up his girls. And that is not okay. In no situation, and no cultural context, is it ever okay to abandon your calling as a father to protect your daughters, to protect your family, even at the cost of your own life. And this is the first signal to us as readers that all is not well, right? We, we haven't gotten to know Lot very much up to this point, but right away, something's not well in Lot's heart, in Lot's home. And the men of Sodom won't have it. Lot's been with them nearly 20 years, and they do not consider him a brother. In fact, in response to Lot's offer, and in response to Lot telling them to not act wickedly, listen to what they say in verse 9. They say, stand back, <laughs> this fellow almost a mocking tone if you can read it as you as you as you read the way Moses wrote this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge now we will deal worse with you than with them all right our attention is off the, the sojourners now it's on you we're gonna we're gonna make it even worse for you than for them Because Lot had suddenly played the judge by simply, simply calling them to not act wickedly. I guess in our culture today, we would say Lot was canceled. 
by calling their desire wicked, calling them wicked in their desires. The angels, you can imagine as they're there listening, watching this take place, they're not going to have any of it because they have come down with a purpose. And do you remember that purpose? Because he told Abraham, the purpose is that the cry has come to the Lord. We're going to see it revealed. We want to see if this is true. And of course, as Peter said last week, they know it's true, right? This is being revealed for us. And it's being revealed to make it plain in plain sight for them and also as a means of rescuing Lot. And it is being revealed, right? This situation has been brought about by God to make known the reality of the depths of the wickedness of the people. And at least up to this point, we scratch our heads when it comes to Lot. And the angels say, no, stand back. In verse 10, it says that after they tried to break down the door, the men reached out their hands, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. And then verse 11, they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. And there's just this picture, like you can just see it, those that are on the outside, those that have been calling uh, to, to, to take what is not theirs to take and to bring a, a wrong justice, right, when actually the justice needs to be done to them. And here they are now blind and just groping, just groping. And there's a reality that they have been struck blind physically because over their hearts is a deeper spiritual blindness. We find that linkage throughout Scripture. Spiritual blindness, physical blindness imaging a worse blindness. And the people of Sodom have been blind. They have been blind for years. And they cannot see what is right before them. And that is that God has sent messengers to the city and that judgment for sin is real and it is coming and so this first section ends with a plea because in verse 12 the the angels the men they say to lot is there anyone else here all right and you get this the, the very first people mentioned right sons-in-laws and then sons daughters or anyone else in the city bring them out of this place because we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so they are, they are pleading, pleading with Lot to gather his relatives and get out of the city. So Lot, in verse 14, goes, and it's another surprise. Again, as I read it for the first time, I don't expect to see this. If I know the storyline, it surprises me because the text says that Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, right, the first people mentioned by the angels, he says to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place. The Lord is about to destroy the city. Okay, Lot believes the message. He knows it's right. But in the eyes of these men, he seemed to be jesting. As I read it, I don't quite get it. I, I don't think Lot had a smile on his face. I don't think Lot was telling a joke, right? Like Lot is pleading, get out of here. Judgment is coming. But they don't think he's serious, right? They think he's jesting. They don't think he's serious. Um, how can that be? They don't believe the message. And what is revealed is that they too are spiritually blind. We're, we're able to, dis, to discern really from the storyline that, that even as we read this, we're kind of, again, scratching our heads going, okay, wait a minute. So these are men who are Lot's daughters who he was offering are betrothed to the text clearly told us earlier that every man of the city, both old and young, came and surrounded the house. 
So right away, we're wondering, okay, so were these guys actually there? And I think we're left to say, yeah, they were there. They probably weren't at the door, right? They weren't leading the charge because they weren't struck blind. They were hanging back. And yet these men of Sodom had been committed. They had been betrothed to Lot's daughters. You just say, why? Why would Lot do this? Were there no other people to choose from? We read through Genesis and there's lots of stories of going and finding a bride or going and finding one to marry, right? To find a spouse. And yet here Lot has made a choice because he's in Sodom and he's in Sodom as a sojourner. And there's something very clear that you gain when you, you benefit when you marry into a place. You actually become one of them. You're taken in. And so if, if we travel back with Lot and we see his struggle, right, as Abraham offers him the land and he chooses the good land, right, that which seems best in his own eyes, and he goes towards the valley where Sodom is. And the text tells us, right, Moses tells us that they were wicked sinners. And, and then Lot is living in Sodom, right, as it's being taken into captivity. And as Abraham rescues Lot and he's back into Sodom, and here he's at the city gate and his daughters are promised to the Sodom men. Let me just wonder, Lot, what is guiding your choices? Right, what is it that you're making these choices based on what is wise in your eyes, but ultimately leads to death or to destruction, to hurt and to despair? And so we're just scratching our heads, wondering what is going on with Lot. And so the first section ends there, right? So what's going to happen? And we go to the second se section. The second section we're going to title, Escape and Be Saved. Do you remember a few chapters back when God judged the world with a flood, right? Noah, his wife, and his three sons, they willingly entered the ark, God closed the door. Here, it's almost the opposite. It's, it's like the angels can't get them out of the city. In fact, as morning dawned in verse 15, the angels say, take your wife and your two daughters who are here lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And look at what the text says. But he lingered. He lingered. To the point that finally the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. And then the text says, the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. Lot did not deserve this kind, this care, this kindness. And yet this was God's mercy. Even as they're lingering, even as they're wrestling through leaving, the angels bring them out and lead them out and finally tell them, escape for your life. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And it's here that Lot pleads. And it's not a pleading that demonstrates faith, right? It's a pleading that's based on fear. He says, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have shown me great kindness in saving my life but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Then he says, behold, this city is near enough to flee to. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. It's interesting because the angel's response to this request very different than Abraham's intercession before. Uh, in verse 21, they just simply say, behold, I grant you this favor also. I've been merciful to bring you out. I'm also gonna grant you this request. I will not overthrow the city, that small city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly. But listen to what he says. For I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. Lot had a clarity that the destruction isn't coming until Lot is safely out. They are fleeing a destruction, but in the midst of the fleeing of destruction, they are protected. They are safe. 
right, until they get to the place of safety. And so he makes it clear and he grants his request. And now we're set up for the grand finale, the outpouring of God's judgment on the cities of the valley. And it's this part of the story that I think most of us know very well. It's the part that, that, that we see, uh, whether it's in a, in a children's curriculum or, or in a book, it's the destruction piece in verse 24. Because the, the text tells us very clearly that the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. All right, God is bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says that he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And this is a foreshadowing, right? This is a foreshadowing of a greater judgment that is, that is coming. It's gonna come upon the whole land 500 years later through the hands of Joshua and the people of Israel. It's a foreshadowing of another greater judgment even than that that will come upon the whole world at the end of days. And here, God's wrath towards sin is revealed and towards those who walk in sin. And it should strike us, right? It's painful to watch people lose their lives. It's painful to watch the men of the city try to get to the visitors and even Lot themselves, right? And yet, these are real people. Lot lived and walked among them for over 20 years, but even as we recognize the destruction of a city, there should be this passion for God's glory to be made known in the midst of the sinfulness of the world that should consume us even greater. In the midst of judgment, of sin, over those who persist in it, it's easy to miss something. And that is God's mercy and salvation. If we were to title the third section, I would call it Judgment and Salvation because these are paired together and yet it's often easy to just see the judgment piece, right? Because they deserved it. Look at their wickedness revealed. Look at God's justice that comes down. He does destroy. He does judge sin and sinners. Last year, my cousin, she had a renewed passion for God and she went back and started reading the Bible. So she started with Genesis 1 and she got right up through this, this story and she calls me and she's like, Keith, I'm struggling. I'm like, okay. She's like, I'm reading my Bible. Great. Ah, I just read Sodom and Gomorrah. Great. She's like, no, it just seems like everywhere I read, it's just God's judgment, God's judgment. God's just judging all the time. That's not far off from when I was in high school. I remember a friend of mine saying to me, Keith, the God of the Old Testament's a God of judgment and the God of the New Testament's a God of love. It's like there's two different gods and those are both wrong. There's not. There's one God and he is a God of judgment and salvation. The God that is loving in and through his judgment and through his judgment, he is loving. And they're never separated from each other. They're bound together. What's easy to miss in this story is the whole history that God has taken Sodom through. It's easy to forget that, that not even probably 20 years earlier, as the kings came and as they raided Sodom and Gomorrah, as they destroyed the kings of the valley, they took all of these people and all of their possessions and they were gone. Their lives were over. They were going to be killed or enslaved, right? At that point, it's easy. Abraham, just let them all go, right? God's cleared out the land, okay? So that you can, you can rule the land God's given you. And that isn't what God's plan was. Because instead, God through Abraham, do you remember? With those trained in his house, that little army of men went and overthrew those kings and brought them all back they all had experienced a type of salvation at the hands of Abraham and the God of Abraham that brought them back into their land. Did they repent of their wicked evil? Answer, no. They, 
continued in their own stubbornness. Who sat with Abraham listening as Melchizedek comes and blesses him? As they pour oil or, or bread and wine and as, as, as Melchizedek blesses Abraham and as Abraham gives to Melchizedek, who's there? It's the king of Sodom. Who's dwelling in the land? Not too far from where Melchizedek, righteous Melchizedek, lover and worshiper of God, dwells, right? It's the king of Sodom. It's the people. There was witness and testimony in the land. And this is a very different situation. I, I like how Peter drew us last week to think of other, other times where you get a city like Jonah going in and just saying, yeah, you know, 40 days and... None of us done, and everybody repents, and you're like, what? Okay, that isn't what his purpose is here, because Sodom has their own story, and they've been hardened, and God has come in his judgment, and he's come to save and rescue Lot and to bring judgment on Sodom, but he had brought mercy. There was witness um, to them through the God of Abraham. They spurned that mercy and they just went deeper in their sin. They spurned God's kindness and they went deeper in their own depravity. Do you ever do the same? Right? That's where the story has to come and sit on us. But there's another painful part of the story. And that's Lot's wife. It's just a little note in verse 26, but it's an important one. And it's a tough one. Because Lot's wife, who was behind him, looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Lot knows the judgment won't come until he's reached the city. And so it's like, okay. Did you just not wait for your wife, buddy? You know, <laughs> it's like, come on. It, it, there's more going on here than that. In fact, when I first had read this story and I, I've seen it, you know, heard it taught and, and seen it in children's uh, uh, Bibles and things, you almost get this picture that Lot's wife is just running and there's this destruction coming and she's like this. And then, boom, right? It's just, isn't that kind of how we picture it? You know, that she just kind of gives a little look back and you're like, oh, well, that was sure unfair, God. I mean, I understand you're judging of Sodom and Gomorrah, but really, did Lot's wife need to become a pillar of salt? Um, but there, again, is more going on here. And really, the first clue is the note that she was behind Lot. All right, you already remember that they struggled to even get out of the city. There was a reason, okay? And now as they're fleeing, she is behind She's not there. She's not with him as he enters the city. In fact, wherever she is, she is close enough to herself be caught in the judgment. But the second note or the second clue is in the phrase, she looked back. That's not just a glance. In fact, uh, I've heard it through a, one of my old professors really refer to this as a Hebrew idiom. It could mean one of two things, that either her heart was back in Sodom or that physically she went back. So the she looked back is a she looked back, she went back. But either way, she was there. Whether it was in heart, whether it was in body, Lot's wife was this way, not this way. And she is brought into judgment. Luke 9.62 records Jesus giving this statement. Listen carefully to Jesus' words. It says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. All right, this is in the context of those who are, are offering to follow Jesus, but they give excuses because of family ties back at home. Right, I've, let me go back and first bury my parents or, or at least say goodbye to my family. Like it's that, yeah, I'd go with you, but here's this excuse and it's, I'm gonna go back to, to, this, to this. And Jesus refers to that as looking back. He's not stating that a glance behind you is gonna keep you from the kingdom. 
It's a calling like the disciples to leave everything and to follow Jesus. Abandon your life or simply put, lose your life if you want to save it. Lose it. Lot's wife was stubborn in heart and did not abandon her life for the promise that was before her. She looked back. Her heart was back as she got brought into the judgment of Sodom. Later in Luke, in chapter 17, Jesus is talking about the day that he will return, a return that will be in judgment. After his suffering, after his rejection, he likens his coming. It will happen like in the days of Noah, when they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the appointed day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And then Jesus says this, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And then Jesus goes on to say, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. All right, and he says to all of us gathered here, remember Lot's wife, right? What seems like such a a side comment, Jesus picks up on that and says, remember Remember her, not because she glanced, right? But because of the promise before her and the pull and the yearning behind her, keeping her heart this direction. Remember Lot's wife. If you want to gain your life, lose your life. She sought to preserve her life in Sodom. She didn't want to give it up. And Jesus uses her as a warning for us all. And really, that's where we have to. We have to go there and place ourselves into the story, right? How am I Lot's wife? If Jesus is saying, remember Lot's wife, why? What does that reveal about me? How do I seek to preserve my life in a world that I've been called out of? Now the harder part. How do you see your own heart revealed in the people of Sodom? What was the sin of Sodom? We know the term sodomy often gets used just to summarize the sin of Sodom. And yet we're going to find that there's something even deeper that is revealed. If you turn with me to Ezekiel 16, listen to what God says. This is in a passage where God is rebuking his people for their own unfaithfulness to God as a bride, their own spiritual harlotry, if you will. And in 1648, he is likening the sin of of Israel and Judah to that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says in Ezekiel 1648, as I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. And Israel was imaging Sodom in this way. And yet as God likens the sin of Sodom to his people, he identifies these things, right? Starts out right at the heart of it. It's pride, right? From Augustine to Calvin, they've echoed that pride is the sinful root in each of us from which all sin flows. It's that reality. And then excess of food, more than enough, where you can indulge, where you can self-gratify, where you can be picky, 
because there's always more than enough, a way to just feed your own desires. And then prosperous ease, right? Where prosperity is such that recreation and play are pursued above work. It's prosperous ease. What, wh- why should I work? What, do, what else do I need to do? I'm living for play. And these sound very much like life where, can you guess? Definitely sounds much like life in America. My Ugandan brothers and sisters would say, yes, that is America. I want to go there. (laughs) And yet I can see my own heart's longing, right, for indulgence and comfort and ease right here. And suddenly my own heart is revealed. And there's this slippery slope of sin, right, that, that we get drawn down, that takes root in our hearts, the self-seeking, the self-gratifying. And then that plays right into the sexual whims and impulses of our culture that are called upon to be yielded to without restraint. And how as a culture we have gone down that path. And yet, those same seeds, the same root abides in each human heart. And then God's words to Israel hit a little bit closer to home in Ezekiel 16. Look at verse 56. He says, was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered? Think about it. The way we speak about Sodom, ha, those people, right? The way we set ourselves up, it's like Sodom is a byword in our mouth, isn't it? Right? It, in, until our own sin gets uncovered, until we recognize that the same sin there abides in me, abides in us. Yes, as a culture, no question, we have run that route. We are there. But it's not those people. Those very things are right inside of the human heart and they reveal to us our desperate need of a savior from God's righteous judgment against sin and our own sin. We stand in the same desperate need as Lot and his wife and his daughters and every person inside of Sodom. We are right there. And if we had an hour, I would just start telling you, Story after story after story of heartbreak in the local church from pastor right down of the reality of these seeds in the heart unchecked that lead to death and destruction and pain and hurt. And this is real. It's here because we are here. And this message should be right here in the face of every one of us. Because as God is revealed in his holiness and in his righteous judgment against sin, it's not there. It's here because we stand in desperate need of God. But God, instead of sending angels to come and to draw out the sinful hearts of people, do you know what God did? God came himself. He took up residence in a womb. I love Advent. Right? That hope of his coming, seeing it dawning, and the hope of second coming. And he took up residence in a womb. He was born into this world and he lived among sinners, right? He walked among them and he revealed the hearts of those he was around. You read the Gospels, you see it again and again. Your heart's going to be revealed when you're around Jesus. And he lived the perfect life, right? He displayed the power of God and the kingdom of God, the king who was in their midst, but he was the righteous king in their midst, the one that Melchizedek was pointing ahead to. And he called people to repentance and he proclaimed forgiveness and the reality of God's kingdom. And you know what? He ate a last supper, a meal with his disciples before he was betrayed killed by those who were his brothers, right? He could have escaped, just like Lot. He could have escaped. He took upon himself, though, the judgment and the wrath of God towards sin and sinners. He didn't become a pillar of salt. He died on the cross, bearing our judgment that he didn't deserve. 
taking the wrath of God that is our wrath onto himself that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might stand in the faith of Abraham, that you might stand in the faith of, put your name in there, trusting in the one who's borne the judgment of God for you. And yet every one of us are called. Remember Lot's wife. Don't let your heart go back. Don't let the seeds of sin abide right in this place. Don't live hidden. Because what happens if your sin is revealed? Our God is a God who delights to reveal sin, that we might be set free from it, brothers and sisters. That we might cling to Christ because a judgment is coming. At the end of days, when the Son of God returns, He will judge the world, and it won't be with a flood. It'll be by fire. As Revelation points, and really as Peter says it this way in 2 Peter 3, he says that they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Right? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. Right? That's the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Like there is a greater judgment coming. That picture of Sodom and Gomorrah is a real picture. Like God is being patient and he is patient. But he's patient because the gospel is going forth into the nations and gathering a bride and his kingdom will go forth and it is victorious. And we get to be a part of that. And that is awesome, even as we recognize that day of judgment is real. So that's why we cling to Christ. And we turn from sin. And we don't want to be a people shaped by the world in which we live. This really is the end, because we come to this last little addendum here in Genesis 14, or Genesis 19. Because the text could have just stopped right here. In fact, it ends in verse 29 by recognizing that God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of their midst when he overthrew the city. Like he did all of this, remembering Abraham and the promises. But then it adds on this little story at the end, which is shocking. Kind of like you get to the end of Judges and you're like, whoa, okay, these stories are crazy because they just reveal the depths of sin and depravity in the hearts of God's people, of Israel. And here we find that Lot is now fleeing away from the city that he had hidden in. He's up in a cave and he's with his daughters. And there they are thinking that everybody on the earth is gone and, and how are we even gonna ever have children? And so, hey, let's just, let's just have kids by our dad, right? Let's, let's go that route. Um, and, and, and it walks us through this crazy twisting of what God has actually called his people to. And you, you sit back and you go, where did they even come up with this as an idea to execute it? And we're left with one answer. Can you guess? Where had they been living for all these years? Sodom. They had been sexualized by a culture that had been completely given over, calling the twisted what is right and good. And here, Lot may have kept them and protected them from any man, right? Yet they're engaged to these men and you find the reality of the influence of the culture around them penetrating right into his own family. And brothers and sisters, that is a great warning. And just as Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, he would also say, remember Lot's daughters. Because we want and must be a people who are leading our children in righteousness. And we find that contrast back in 18 with Abraham. And really, this is where I think the contrast is so clear. Because in Genesis 18, God said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to share this with Abraham because I've chosen him 
so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and doing justice that the Lord would bring about what he had promised. And here is the opposite for Lot. He's not leading his household in the righteousness of God. Instead, they have been fully penetrated by the depravity of the culture. And I know that in my own home and in homes all over, if I could just hold up that little device called a phone, right? Like, like the reality of what we get penetrated with so easily in the clear agenda of our culture. It's just this washing of twisting of what God has made right. Brothers and sisters, do you know what's amazing for us? Is that the answer isn't to flee away and to go and create our own little Christian commune, right, that just protects us from everything and it's kind of this is our little, our little bubble that's safe. Do you know what Jesus, recognizing all of this, do you know what he actually calls us to? Do you remember what he said? Hey, as you're going, make disciples of who? All the nations. All of the wicked, opposing, oppressing, twisted, sinful nations. Go and make disciples. And he sends out his people as salt and light in a twisted and depraved culture. And yes, just like the people of Sodom, right? It's like, who, who made you the judge, right? You're gonna get that. But it's recognizing that I'm not the judge, right? I stand as one just as desperately in need of the same gospel I'm pointing you to, right? I stand as one who deserves the same judgment because these same seeds are here, But by his grace, I cling to the one who took judgment for me. And by his grace, I get to reflect his righteousness and the joy of life in Christ. That's what I'm inviting you into, right? Yes, you'll be persecuted, but oh, the gospel will go forth because you are salt and you are light, brothers and sisters. I love Advent. You get that candle and it's the picture of the light of the world that we get to image as we live in the culture and in the world that he's put us. Now, with that, we get to come to this table and we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate the one who gave his life for us. The good news. We get to participate in a shared meal prepared by Christ through our deacons, we get to come and we get to touch and taste and know the grace of forgiveness that has come to us in the gospel. We get to remember Lot's wife. We get to remember Lot's daughters. We get to remember Lot. And we get to cast our gaze upon Jesus and cling to him together. And we get to celebrate the transforming grace of God. We also get to walk in faith and repentance. Because if you remember the way we started the sermon, it was thinking about what do we do when we come into circumstances where we are revealed, where our flesh comes out and we want to say, oh, sorry, you had to see the real, I mean, not the real me, sorry, you had to see that me, when actually we recognize that that is the real you. The real us is revealed in our flesh. It is revealed in our responses. It is revealed in our anger. It is revealed in our our shirking back or our hiding away. It's revealed in all of these things. We don't have to make excuses. Together, we put it out there and we say, I need the grace of God in Christ. And we invite others into that journey as we live faith and repentance together. That is what makes the gospel tangible and beautiful in our midst. And I'm telling you, where a body lives that out, it is so exciting. Who doesn't want to be a part of that family? Would you join me as we pray? Lord God, we just, I am awed. Uh, the reality of judgment, the reality of, of your wrath against sin poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. But boy, the wrath that was poured out on your son for sinners, the wrath that I deserve, that we deserved,
God, we want to stand in awe of your amazing grace. Uh, you have led us out of death into life and into family. Lord, may we walk in your righteousness. May we lead our children in that righteousness. May we live the gospel. May we confess sin. May we not live with hidden sin or deceits. May we be a people who are revealed because you love to reveal our hearts and you meet us in that place with your grace. May we bask in that grace, Lord, as we come to table together. May we proclaim forgiveness to one another and love for you together. Would you build this body as we follow you? Thank you for your word. Blessed be your name. Amen.